Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life, if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is June 22nd, 2016, and this is uh, episode 1813 of the Survival Podcast. As it is a Wednesday, as is our tradition most of the time anyway, we are going to have an interview today, and I'll tell you what, I'm looking forward to it because I get to talk about one of my favorite things in the world today, mead. Yes, mead, the drink of the Vikings. And in this case, we're actually going to talk to an author who wrote a book called Make Mead Like a Viking. His name is Jeremy Zimmerman. Uh, I got to tell you, I love this book. I got this book last year. Uh, Chelsea Green Publishing is the publisher. And, it, and occasionally when they have an author come out with a new book, they will send me a copy of the book. So they sent me this in the late fall last year, right as I began my journey on small batch mead making, uh, for, you know, kind of being kicked into that by Michael Jordan. And when I read this book, I'm like, this guy's fantastic. We have to get him on the air. And I don't know, I guess we went back and forth a few times before Dorothy connected with him and got him on the air. Uh, but I'm glad that he's here today. This book... Um, I liked it as much for the Viking lore and the stories and the traditions of where mead came from and how it was explained by the Vikings when people didn't understand what things like yeast were, as I did for the techniques and the recipes. It, it was just great on all three fronts. And Jeremy's a good dude, man. He's not just a guy that makes mead and writes books. He's you know he's a he's a true homesteader. He focuses on a local. Uh, Wildcrafted products for the mead. He, he gives a lot of information, not just on traditional Viking mead, but things like Tef. What's Tef? I'll, maybe I'll get him to tell you what that is today. And uh, he gave me, through his book and illustrations, a freedom in making meads that I had not known. And what I mean by that is I got sloppy after reading Make Mead Like a Viking. With sanitation, I got sloppy with, you know, doing everything exactly perfectly. I, I'm an old school home brewer. And I grew, you know, grew into my craft reading books like uh, The Complete Joy of Home Brewing by Charlie Papazzi. And that dates how long I've been doing this. When that book was new, right? It was like the Bible uh, of home brewing. And I was always meticulous with everything. And to, to be frank, it made things kind of a pain in the ass. And it made the thought of doing a one-gallon batch kind of like, I don't want to go through all this crap to make a gallon. Now I can whip out a gallon in 30 minutes. I can bottle that gallon when it comes time to do it in 20 minutes. I can clean everything uh, on either day in 5 to 10 minutes. And it's easy. Therefore, I make a lot of meat. In fact, right now, what I've got going on in front of me, I've got a cherry vanilla mead made with Hanson's Bush cherries and a blackberry vanilla mead made with blackberries that I picked on my own property. Those are chugging away, and I got three other gallons over to the side. I don't remember exactly what's in there, but those need to be bottled. And uh, I'll tell you about another mead today after I get uh, Jeremy on the air because I want to share it with him. But before we get into all that, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors of the day. Hey, if, if you're like me, you know what a gun without ammo is. We call that an overpriced club. That's why I go to BulkAmmo.com and keep a good stockpile of ammo for all my guns at all times. And it isn't just great price and availability that keeps me going back for more. Nope, it's lightning-fast shipping and exceptional service. Give BulkAmmo.com a shot, and I promise they won't let you down. 
Hey guys, if you're like me, you're always concerned about the reckless economic policies of our nation. One way to ensure your wealth is to keep about 5-10% to of it in precious metals, like silver and gold. And my first choice when I'm buying either is Jam Bullion, because I get personalized service, free shipping, and better pricing than the big silver houses all in one place. Check out jambullion.com to learn more. And with that, let us take a look at the year that was the episode. In 1813, we have A Monument to the Triumph of Napoleon in Plaster. And we have Don't Give Up the Ship, the Battle Flag of Lake Erie. And in other news, three bullet points for this year. Mexico declares its independence from Spain. Jane Austen publishes Pride and Prejudice. And The Waltz becomes the most popular dance in Europe. You know, on that one, just real quick, I wonder... I wonder if they could have ever envisioned at the time of 1813 that in 2016 there would be redneck honky-tonks all over Texas where people would be dancing the waltz to country waltz music. I'm just saying. Anyway, with that, I want to uh, read for you today, Don't Give Up the Ship, the Battle Flag of Lake Erie, because, yes, this is about our early history here in America. And as much as France is interesting, I'm more interested in what happened here than there, even though I know that's probably not right. I am. This is the War of 1812, when the British have blockaded Lake Erie with two warships they already had on site. They cut off the supply line to Detroit, while British forces crossed the Detroit River. They capture a United States ship named the Adams and Port. The U.S. forces need more gunships on Lake Erie to challenge the British, but the only effective way to do that is to build new ships, so they do. Facilities for building ships is inadequate, but they have a master shipbuilder and iron will of Captain Oliver Perry. He is the older brother of Matthew Perry, who will open up ports of Japan for American shipping, whether they like it or not. Captain Perry will challenge the British on the lake, but first, he wants a new battle flag. His friends suggest that the dying words of Captain James Lawrence on the frigate USS Chesapeake be written across the flag, Don't give up the ship. With a shortage of experienced sailors on both sides, Captain Perry sets out to challenge the British on his flagship, the Lawrence. Perry catches the best wind, called the weather gauge. He sets sail right into the British squadron and pounds away with cannon fire. Ships become entangled in their rigging and crashes all around. It soon becomes a melee. The damage to Perry's ship, the Lawrence, is horrifying, but in the end, the British surrender control of the lake. My take by Alex Shrugg. Captain Perry got all the best lines in this story. He said, If a victory is to be gained, I will gain it. And he wrote to General William Harrison, We have met the enemy, and they are ours. The Congress awarded him the Congressional Gold Medal inscribed with the words Latin that read in English, Valor finds or makes a way between the fleets of America and the Britain, and Britain, September 10, 1813. He was thereafter known as the hero of Lake Erie, and for clarity's sake, there is no Congressional Medal of Honor. The Medal of Honor awarded by the President of the United States on behalf of the military for bravery above and beyond the call of duty. The Congressional Gold Medal is awarded by an act of Congress for whatever reason they deem appropriate, and it is sometimes presented by the President of the United States. Interesting. Um, my take on this is... Why does this country have such a track record of not getting shit done until we have to? If you look at every time when this country's been faced with a true war where we had to fight, um, we were totally unprepared, but yet when it came down to it, our ability to actually get it done was evident. That was true in 1813, to, to be able to have to build ships and get them on the water now. Not later, not next year, not five years from now, now to get it done. 
World War One, World War Two, as we, we 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 flexed our industrial might. And today we sit, and, and you know me, guys. I'm not for warfare. I am as anti-war as it gets. But we sit and we keep dinking around in the Middle East with the, this this mess. We, we have two strategies we could we could employ over there. One would be to get out, get our hands out of there and stop making it worse. But if we're going to be there, shouldn't we fight to win? I'm just saying. And if it's not worth fighting to win, then maybe it's not worth fighting at all. The more things change, the more they stay the same. And I hope we will always be able to get things done when we absolutely need to. Because there's a lot of other places, I think, in this country right now, we're, pro we're procrastinating getting things done. We're not preparing for a major economic shift that has to come. We're not preparing for so many things. Hopefully, someday, we actually will learn the lessons of the past. Because remember what I told you almost eight years ago, right as I started the show. We don't study history to learn lessons from the past. We study history because of all the dumbass things that people did in the past. And sooner or later, someone is going to do those dumbass things again, and we need to be prepared to deal with it when they do. My take by Jack Spearco. Anyway, with that, let's go ahead and uh, get into the main topic of today's show. And, uh, of course, that is it means it's time for me to introduce my special guest, Jeremy Zimmerman, author of Make Mead Like a Viking, an all-around good dude. Hey, Jeremy, man, with that, welcome to the Survival Podcast. Thanks for having me. Man, I'm, I'm glad to have you on. We were chatting a bit before uh, before we, we started I saw you how much I liked your book, but I'm going to actually let you know something that I, I'm doing something today I've never done on the air before. I am presently pouring a glass of mead. <laughs> I, I should have sent you some of my mead so you could tell me how terrible it is, but uh, I figured in honor of having you on the show, I, I would have a, a bit of mead as we talk together today. It, it's not a wildcrafted mead. Uh, it's actually a coffee vanilla mead, but it is for my honey, for my bees in the backyard. So here's to you, man. Well, you know, if I'd known, I would have uh, grabbed a glass. I'm just drinking water. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I've ever drank alcohol while recording the show before. I've I've been recording things before, but never the show. But I was just thinking about that today, and I went upstairs, and the first box I opened, I pulled it out, and it said coffee, and I'm like, okay, that that that's an excuse, right? It's still like it's just just afternoon, it's early, but it's coffee, so it's okay. Um, but seriously. Um, You have a great book. Your your book make me make make me like a Viking was sent to me by your publisher, and I read it uh, you know late last like around winter time last year or early this this year somewhere in that time. And it was just a great book, so I'm glad to have you on. I want to talk all about that and more. But before we do, could you just kind of tell people like kind of how you basically grew up, what you kind of did professionally, and how it led you eventually into this this world of you know making meat and fermentation? Um, sure, I uh, kind of. I'll start pretty early, I guess, since um, it, my childhood kind of played a part in what I'm doing now professionally. I actually grew up um, homeschooled on a on a farm about 40 acres in Kentucky. Uh, my parents were kind of part of what was called at that time, I guess, the back to the land movement, and they bought a really rundown shack pretty much which is now a beautiful farmhouse so i spent most of my childhood tearing walls down tearing floors out and then eventually put it all help put it all back together <laughs> so and my mom homeschooled me throughout that my dad taught high school english i did eventually go to high school with my dad i'm kind of wishing i'd stayed through the whole homeschool thing but i guess it helped me socially if nothing else but yeah i went from there and 
went on to Berea College in Berea, Kentucky, which is where I currently live. And my first couple classes, I realized the only thing I actually enjoyed or I guess was good at <laughs> was writing. I enjoyed essays, so I decided to become an English major. And that kind of led into my profession. I did a lot of volunteer jobs, writing and editing newsletters and that sort of thing. And over time, I eventually developed a freelance writing career. So for about last 10, 15 years, I've been working for myself. And primarily what I did for quite a while was kind of mostly business technical writing kind of stuff. I actually write resumes is one of the things I do. But eventually I realized that, hey, I can actually make money writing about stuff I enjoy. Hmm. So, and, and throughout all that, um, I, I neglected to mention I had actually moved after graduating from Berea to uh, Seattle, Washington for about eight years. And, and that is what, that's where I started homebrewing. Started making beer and did that for a while. I kept getting more and more experimental with it and it was kind of, from there, moving back to Kentucky, that somewhere during that period, I started picking up on mead. And in doing that, I was, I was also kind of transitioning back to how I grew up and was really following the sustainability movement, modern homesteading, permaculture, whatever you call it. I just call it living because that's what we called it growing up. So... Yeah, and, and all through that, I also have been a bit of a nerd and really interested in history and medieval stuff and really got into Vikings and Norse mythology. And as I was doing that, kept coming across mead. And that's kind of at some point, you know, the Make Mead Like a Viking title just popped into my head and it started out as just doing workshops, mostly at sustainability type events and that sort of thing. And started writing about it for a website called earthenear.com where I write as the redheaded yeti. <laughs> <laughs> like that. And that, that's kind of what got me. There's a great community there and that's what kind of got me out there. It's got me out doing workshops and interacting with people. And eventually I connected with some publishers and picked Chelsea Green. Um, well, they kind of picked me, but I, I agreed with them basically. Got you. Got you. They came up to me at an event. And I was like, yeah, sure. Why not? I read a book. <laughs> <laughs> there's there's authors out there that are trying to publish uh, a book without self publishing that are pulling their hair out right now. But it, it, it's a uh, it, it's a cool thing, man. It's a great story. So you, uh, you you're passionate about meat. I know that from reading your stuff. As uh, am I. For people that are maybe new to the show, because I've talked about meat a lot here, what is meat? In fact, you kind of have your own definition of meat. So, how do you define meat? Well, um, I don't. I mean, I guess I have my own definition in a way, but mostly, it's I'm not as strict about what is what makes a meat as some people in the meat making community seem to be. I mean, really, all meat is is it's fermented. Fermented honey, but really fermented honey and water. Sure. So, you know, as, as I, I think I say somewhere early on in the book, you know, at its core, it's honey, water, and yeast. But there are many, many variations you can go at from there. Um, I, I like to say if it's, you know, around 75% or more honey by volume, then it's a meat. From there, you can add fruit, you can add herbs, you can add all kinds of stuff. You can make it so that it's, 
carbonate and fizzy. You can make it so that it's flat. Some people, you know, try one, try a carbonate of meat and they're like, well, that's not meat. It can't be meat because it has to be flat like a wine. Nah, it doesn't. <laughs> I mean, and I'm not the only one who really feels that, but there kind of seems to be a bit of a... There is a purist's like yeah. attitude and I'm thinking, you know, especially as I was reading your book, I was thinking a lot about this, like, in the past, honey was such a, a, a rare thing for people to be able to get their hands on in large quantity that anything else with a sugar just got chucked in with it. And, you know, I remember reading your book about them basically using ladles and drinking it while it was still actively fermenting and all. And I'm going, you know, if you want to say that, like, I don't know, a pure mead is X or whatever today, that's fine. But in the tradition of mead making throughout the world, and it's not just the Vikings, I learned a lot in your book about other areas of the, the world where, where mead was made, um, it, there was no purism. It was simply, they made mead because it tasted good and got you drunk, and it was great to party yeah. with. You know? I mean, there's more to it than that, too, with some of the lore and yeah. all, but in the end, I mean, there was no purism in, in, in whatever you'd call traditional, so the purists are not traditionalists. They, they might believe they are, but they're not. Yeah, I mean, I've found that the whole purist thing is really more of a modern... Um, construct I guess especially when I was researching like kind of there are only so many texts that go back as far as like medieval times but going as far back as I could and it it got confusing after a bit because it it got to the point where cider, mead, beer I mean a lot of the times in older texts they could be talking about any of those they would use different words and the words you know kind of changed over time so for a long time it was just you get whatever sugars together you can you throw what you put in what you can into it ferment it and drink it and if it makes you feel good then you, know, <laughs> you did call it right. what you want <laughs> you did it right right that's that's really a lot of it too yeah did it get, did you did you feel good after you drank it yeah did it taste reasonable yeah then you did it right um, <laughs> and you know I was I was saying before I brought you on your book actually made me love making meat again and, and, and brewing again and making cider again and everything because I had gotten to be, the only way I can describe this is such a tight ass about sanitation and everything being perfect and everything being, you know, and it was just, it got to the point where, you know, there, when you're like that, you'll never make less than a five-gallon batch because it's such a pain to do. You don't want to, to make a gallon or a two-gallon experimental batch or whatever. And now I'm whipping out like one-gallon batches once a week. You know, just yeah. out of whatever random stuff is, is, you know, the pears will be ripe soon, and I'll make a pear mead. And I, the blackberries were ripe last week, so I made a blackberry. And the week before, my bush cherries were ripe, so I made a bush cherry mead. And I just don't get all wound up about it anymore. And the weirdest thing is, my quality has not gone down at all. I have yet to make something that tastes like a Band-Aid or, or whatever. And when I used to be a tight ass, occasionally I'd have a bad batch of more beer than mead. And I think it was because, you know, back in the day we used bleach. We didn't have star sand and stuff like that. And you'd get, like, a residue of that on it, and that could screw everything up. Where it's just kind of chilling the hell out, using hot water and rinsing everything and making sure it's cleaned off and make it. And all of a sudden, I love doing it again. And it's, it's it takes less time to clean up. It's, it's just a better way, in my opinion. Yeah, and I was, I was actually at the same point. I really didn't make a, make a whole lot of beer for a while. I was... You know, I would read all the early stuff about you know, sanitize the heck out of everything and and you know, I completely understand where that comes from, but as I started looking into meat and my goal in starting with that was you know, 
if I'm going to make it like a Viking, I, I need to make it like, you know, they would have made it. They didn't have all that stuff. They didn't have yeast from the store. You know, that's so. And also there was kind of a, you know, kind of a, it was a mystical thing to them. And I, I just, my mentality in general is to try to avoid it as much as possible, any kind of man-made chemicals. So, yeah, mead, I started doing a lot of one-gallon batches, and that eventually got me back into beer, too, and I do beer pretty much the same way now. And I'm not going to say every batch turns out perfect because I experiment a lot with with ingredients and whatnot. But as far as just not going overboard with you know, sanitization, but cleaning, yes, you know, I, you know, it still takes time. Especially if I'm doing a five-gallon batch, sure, because I'll yeah. use hot, soapy water and I'll rinse it and all that sort of thing. So, you know, I do want to be clean. Yeah, but, but it's still a lot less of a pain w- without having to think of, you know, did, did I sanitize everything? Did I sanitize this one thing? But it it touched something that wasn't sanitized. That was it. That was always like about me. Like, yeah, you, you sanitize your siphon hose, and then well, I set it down. Oh, now I got it. You know, and it was just like. And I was reading your book, and you're talking about stirring it with your arm in it, and I'm like, okay, I'm going to chill out, man. In fact, I'll tell you, like, right after I read that, I actually made a batch of apple cider that I called Dirty Arm, and it wasn't actually intentional. I have uh, these, I don't know if you've seen them, they call them Big Mouth Bubblers, like six yeah. and a half gallon with the drain cock on the bottom and all. So I just got it in, cleaned it all up, put the drain cock on it, and... Um, set it on, on my floor in my office and, and made a five-gallon batch of cider in it. And I come in, and I see a wet spot on the floor, and the freaking drain cock is leaking. So I grab it, run it, set it in the bathtub, and then without even thinking, I just rip the top off, stick my arm in there, and, like, tighten it up. And I'm like, oh, yeah, that's that's got to be good for it. But you know what? It came out just fine. Everybody that drank it liked it. I, I did tell them what it was, too. I did admit to – because it was like, just shove your arm down in there and, and like – Ten years ago, I would have I would have thrown that batch out. Yeah, I mean, why let it go to waste? Yeah, yeah. But you know, at, at the same time, I should probably go back and reread some of the book. I've uh, <laughs> I, I personally don't go out of the way to stick my <laughs> yeah. my hands necessarily or anything. A lot there, there are portions of the book where I talk to people who were even yeah, I guess a little wilder than I am, and I think some of those stories some people have come back to me and, and assumed that they were. Stories of how I actually did. Yeah, I got you. But you know, I, I've you know, one instance there was some. It was some show on I think some one of those shows on cable where about brewing and beer. And I, I think you know some of the guys had gotten into a vat of beer to impart their wild yeast from their body or something like that. Yeah, that a was few it. things like that were just stories I'd put in that I'd heard, and then it got. It, it almost seems to have been turned into this thing where like people think that I. It's not a recommended practice, but it, it it will chill you out when you realize that people have done that and 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 not destroyed whatever they were making. So you actually call your style of mead making wildcrafted mead making. Can you explain what that means? Well, um, I, I kind of I think I I probably borrowed that. I think the first time I heard it was. Um, a guy I know down in North Carolina named Mark Williams, and he teaches very similar style of uh, meat and beer making as myself. And I, I think he had used that in one of his workshops, and so I was like, hey, can I borrow that? But the, the main reason was I, the main – the book that really got me into going back into making meat and beer the natural way was 
Sandra Katz's wild fermentation. And, you know, by definition, wild fermentation is using, you know, only wild yeast to ferment the meat or beer or whatever, which is a big part of what I do. It's not the only thing I do. So, you know, I will sometimes, I still use store-bought commercial yeasts. And so I, so I decided since everything I make and teach about isn't necessarily wild fermented, but I do try to use all natural ingredients for like things like tannins and acids and nutrients and all these things that you know modern mead and beer mead and wine books specifically tell you to use. So the, kind of the main thing with the wildcraft it is part of it is just the ingredients I use, and part of it is just the approach and the technique. I mean, there, I, I like to impart a bit of wildness into <laughs> every brew, whether it be by the actual ingredients or just you know my, my own little bit of wildness, I guess. <laughs> Yeah, and I think it, it's very true to the traditional craft because if you were making meat at a time of the year when apricots were around, I mean, that's not a Viking thing. There's not a lot of apricots in, 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 in Norway, Sweden, what have you. But if, you know, down that part of the world they made meat too, then you would naturally go, back, throw the apricots in there, right? Or if it was, you know, the fall, you might throw apples in it or something like that. So. The, the concept of using what's available around you at the time that it's available, kind of like the, the big cooking thing now, seasonally and locally, is very traditional. Yeah, no, and, and I, I mead especially. I'm trying to incorporate more into my beer, but it's it, it's it's got a it's it's very similar to kind of I guess the permaculture mentality is you work with what you have, you work seasonally. It's not like like you can't freeze or dry something if you want to sure if if you get you know some ingredients if like in the fall there are so many different things i'm doing in the garden and you know fruit trees are coming along and you you can't exactly while you're you know trying to pick everything and preserve it and that sort of thing it's not really the best time to be taking time to make meat or beer so yeah sometimes i'll just take something fresh and put it right in and make it so I guess the point is you can still preserve things sure. and, and try to make sure. you know, stuff with it later. But Well, I found actually, you know, you mentioned freezing. A lot of berries, freezing them is actually an awesome way to, like, pre-treat them before you make a mead because it ruptures the cells and then they release their juice. So I'm not big on squeezing stuff. I don't know about you, but I don't want to – I take strawberries, blackberries, whatever, and just right in. But if they've been frozen first, they, they seem to me anyway – that they release their juices a lot easier than if they haven't been, and I think it's because of that cell rupturing. Well, especially with something like apples. I, I, if, I have a big freezer that I sometimes oh. have enough room in, but I, you know, I've, I've taken picked a bunch of those little bitty apples. I have no idea what kind they were, but they were yeah. pretty small, and just put them in really some garbage bags and stuffed them in my freezer. Uh, a friend of mine I knew mentioned that freezing them first is the best way to get the juices out and they they juice so much easier when I took them out and I actually could wait until like you know in the winter when I had a little more time yeah downtime short days that type of thing and I never thought about apples I've never frozen an apple so yeah they get they get kind of you take them out and you let them thaw and they get a little mushy and they you know, the, the, you get the juices out a lot better because, you, like you said, the kind of the cell rupture and that sort of thing. Makes sense. I just did an apple ginger meat, and I think I used like three apples and a gallon of you know a gallon of, of must, 
and did ginger. And I did apple ginger. And I didn't I didn't juice them at all or anything. It wasn't a sizer because I didn't do juice. And I was surprised at how much apple flavor came through by using the whole apple versus using the juice, which usually ferments out very dry. It was the uh, first time I ever did that, and I was really kind of blown away by it, honestly. Well, I'm glad you mentioned that because I've actually I haven't tried that yet, and I've been considering it. Uh, the, the, the problem with making a sizer or a cider is even with you know freezing the apples first, it's it's a pain. <laughs> it takes a lot of time to juice them, even if you got a good juicer. Yeah, yeah. I saw a guy rigged up a really cool thing. He used a garbage disposal, and he had to run like copper pipe around it and run cold water around it as it was running because the driver's disposal is not meant to run for like 15 minutes straight and they overheat. But he was just pounding apples through it and all. But I was like, you know, just throw the apples in there and see what you I mean. What, what's the worst that's going to happen? I'm going to get a non-apple flavored ginger meat. Okay, I'll, I'll drink it. And it was, uh, it was, and I don't know how well it'll translate up. Like, I don't know about you uh, with your experimentation, but I've found sometimes the one gallon batches will take on a lot more flavor of the adjunct then like a big batch seems to, even when you scale it up, you know, to scale. So if you went with three apples and you went up to, you know, uh, 15 apples, you may not, I haven't tried that one yet, but in other instances I haven't gotten quite the same results and it's gotten me really hooked on the small batch stuff. Yeah, I think in a lot of recipes, if I'm scaling up from a one to a five, I won't do an exact scale up. I, I've noticed the same thing, not with not with every batch I've done, but... But usually I try to do a little bit more than just, you know, going from, you know, basically five times the amount of the uh, one gallon. Uh, I, I found that with uh, with vanilla meat for some reason. I'd always heard that it's really easy to overdo vanilla. And the last five gallon I did, I ended up adding some at the very end before bottling because I just couldn't <laughs> quite get enough of that vanilla flavor into it. I don't know why. Yeah, I, I, I've noticed that too, and I think – like I did a vanilla recently. Um, I did a, a limoncello, like a, a liqueur, you know. And I threw like one vanilla bean, and we made like uh, like two quarts of it. And oh my god, the vanilla was over the top. But you have to use a lot more when you're not using that high alcohol extraction of it. I mean, it was almost too much. But if you've never, I don't know if you ever make liqueurs, but if you ever make limoncello, try a vanilla limoncello. That was like. That was sinful. That could that could actually get you into trouble. You had to be careful with that stuff. Yeah, I'll have to try that. I, I haven't personally made a limoncello, but a friend of mine made it, and she doesn't drink a lot. Yeah. So she passed it on to me. And <laughs> yeah, I, I can see that that get me in some trouble if I made too much of that and just that's a dessert replacement. Yeah, it readily available. Yeah, instead of eating pie, you you have like one shot of that for dessert. You know, that's that's that could get you in trouble. Anyway, you emphasize self sufficiency and natural ingredients. Uh, fermenting primarily with wild yeast in your book. Can you also explain how that kind of ties in with your self-described lifestyle of living, right? You don't say sustainable living, green living, simple living. You, you kind of mentioned that. You just got like when you, you were growing up, you just called it living. Well, I mean, it, I will use those terms in the proper context just because a lot of people just need reference. You know, they, they, they need adjectives to describe how you live and that sort of thing. But, but yeah, kind of my point is, up until even, I don't know, 50 years ago, a lot of this stuff was pretty much how you lived. There, not only was there not a choice, but, you know, people, I think authentic, authentic living is another kind of good way to describe it. It's just, I don't know, I mean, it, it was kind of my mentality growing up. We, My mom homeschooled us and didn't, 
she she didn't work. She she worked as a secretary in Cincinnati until she had like the first my older brother. And my dad taught high school English, and Summers did odd jobs for you know because he did a lot of work on his house. So he yeah. basically they would both find any way they could to be as frugal as possible. And yeah, they, they didn't need a lot of money. I, I'm sure we were dirt poor growing up, but we didn't know it. We had tons of food from the garden. We you know, slaughtered our own animals. We, we had more than enough to eat. <laughs> there was certainly no problem there. So I guess it was, for a long time, I didn't even have to think about it. It was just how I lived. And then I've noticed, especially in the past 10, 15 years, that a lot of people are coming back to it. And I'm finding I know all these things that people want to learn about that you know, I, I didn't realize that I really had much to teach and <laughs> I'm kind of finding out going to a lot of the sustainability type events whatever they call them that people are eager to learn about this kind of thing and it's I, I don't I might be digressing from your question a little bit there, no it's but. fine no it's 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 I, th- I think we have a lot of similarities there I, I, how old are you I don't mean to you're not a woman so it probably doesn't bother you to be asked that right no honestly um, for a while there like after I turned 25 I would have to Ask, like, you know, I, I'd actually ask my wife because I just, I, I don't really care about my age. I don't pay attention to Boy, it. Boy, you sound like me. <laughs> but I did just turn 40, like, uh, barely a month ago. So. Okay, so I'm 44, so you're only four years younger than me. And I think that, I think that the, the area you grew up has a lot to do with that because I find, found a lot of the same things. When I started this show, I'm like, if I'm going to do a daily show, how am I going to come up with something to talk about every day? And I didn't realize that a lot of the stuff that I just figured everybody knew, they didn't know. And I, I live in Texas now, but I grew up in Pennsylvania. And I think that whole Appalachian Mountain region, like all the way from down into Kentucky and, and West Virginia and all the way up into New England, there's a lot of big cities in that area. But if you get out of the cities into the mountain regions through that whole you know, Shenandoah Valley all the way up into Maine, all along that like the Appalachian Trail and, and things like that, um, that is how everybody grew up. Like, that's exactly how I grew up. You know, I, I've said many times, I think we grew up poor and we didn't know it. Um, between the deer meat, uh, the small game, the stuff from the garden, uh, stuff like that, we lived like kings and we didn't really, I think the adults knew we were poor. But when you were younger, you had no clue. All you knew is this was fun and I'm going to go out and shoot a squirrel today and I'm going to go out and shoot a deer tomorrow and I'm going to help my grandfather start the tomato plants in February. And I mean, like that type of thing, and I think that like that was all of the country at one time, but I think that region, that northeastern region, I think it held longer there, and, and somewhat due to necessity, you know? Um, and I think that is why a lot of people like yourself and myself have this knowledge, but you're, you're right in my generation, right? Like we're like that last generation out of there that seems to have that. And if we weren't doing the type of thing we were, I think a lot of it could be lost. Yeah, I, I almost feel like there was a period from when, like, you know, my, my family, the, I mentioned the term that was thrown around about what their generation did. I, back to the land was kind of the, the main thing that I hear a lot. But anyway, the, their generation taught a lot of, you know, my generation kind of how to live. And, and I feel like there was kind of a period when that kind of stuff really went downhill and my, my mom mentions a lot of the people she knew that you know went moved out to the country and did the kind of things she did 
a lot of them didn't stick with it. They they ran back. They realized, yeah, they realized that it's it's actual work. I mean, it's work <laughs> you can enjoy, but and they were away from you know the city. They they didn't get the you know the culture or whatever you want to call it that they wanted. So that you know a few people stuck with it, and a lot of them just went went back, and then their kids didn't know a thing about you know how we kind of grow up. And I think now there's the kind of generation that's coming up now is really getting back into this kind of thing. I'll tell so, you another, so we're the wise old men now. Yeah, that's crazy. I think another thing that happened, though, is our generation, right, we left. We took the knowledge with us, but we left because our parents either were stuck there or they moved there by choice. And they were already established in their lives when that time came with a job or figured out how to get by. Whereas we grew up, our generation was, you know, go to college, that type of thing was like pounded in you, get something more. So eventually when you got to a point where you're out of school, you looked around and said, well, if I'm going to have more, I got to go somewhere else because there's no opportunities here career-wise. So we left, and then we didn't have the, even if we wanted to, a lot of us didn't have the ability to teach this generation, this millennial generation coming up now, that our children how to do this stuff because we didn't have the the background. We didn't like if we we're making a movie, we didn't have the set. Right? Like it was easy for us to learn because dad or granddad just you were out the back door. Where if we were living in cities, even if we wanted to pass it on, we could only pass on small pieces of it. And then we also got busy with like, you know, raising a family. So by the time we started to kind of come back to it, a lot of us, I mean, I don't know if you have kids or not, my son's twenty six. Right? So I I'm trying to like recapture this with my grandkids now. You know, it's it's, it, and I think that kind of had this big donut hole in it. Yeah, um, I will say that as much as part of the way, the reason I kind of moved out to the city and when I just wanted to try something different, and in a lot of ways, it it really helped to step away from it a little bit and to see how other how other people live and and to be able to kind of understand the, the type of people that you're eventually going to end up teaching about this sort of thing so the, the distance helped for a while but now i'm back in uh Berea, which is a great town we're kind of in eastern kentucky and yeah i, I have kids um not not too old five-year-old and um almost two <laughs> but we're we're conveniently even though i live in town but I, I have a nice big yard that i can garden and that sort of thing there are all kinds of farms around us and a lot of people are really into the kind of green living sort of thing i guess yeah. So yeah, I've, I've got a nice environment for actually showing them how to do it, and and you know it's good. It is good to have a backdrop to be able to actually, you know, hands-on learning is really the best way to to go about it, I guess. Yeah. And my parents still have their farm, so my, we get to That's go. Awesome. And I, I get to you know my daughter hangs out when I go and butcher goats and that sort of thing, and has no problem with it. I, I'm I'm pretty pretty strong believer in that sort of thing. That you know, they need to understand where if you do eat meat, you need to know where it comes from. You need to understand that an animal had to give its life for it, and that sort of thing. And and, and I have had certainly had people online get all freaked out when I write about that. <laughs> but it's like if you, you ate know, a burger last night, you got nothing to say. That's that's, that's yeah. how my response is. You know, yeah, you're used to your chicken coming in you know, package packages and not even remotely looking like chicken. <laughs> The other day, my grandson was out with my wife, and uh, we have we have turkeys we're raising for this year. 
And uh, we had him out running around. And uh, so Braylon looks at him and he says, are we going to eat them? And uh, Dorothy says, yeah, we're going to eat them. And she, he points at him and goes, we're going to eat you. <laughs> it was like, and then people would be horrified by that. But like, okay, so so you want to out, basically, and this is what America's become to be to a large degree, the, the country that outsources its violence to those who will do it, right? So yeah. whether it's warfare or, or eating or whatever, you outsource the bloodshed so you feel like your hands are clean. If you're eating a steak or a, a chicken kebab or whatever, you're just as responsible for that animal's death as whoever took that animal's life. And I, I look at it this way, too. I'm sure you feel the same way. That All that stuff that comes out of that factory farming, the best day of that animal's life is the day that it dies. Right? Yeah. That's that's the best thing that animal can hope for is to be out of its out of its misery of confinement. For my animals that I process here on my little farm, the worst day of that animal's life is that one second where I have to take its life. And up until that point, it's as happy as an animal could be. And I think we can give an animal a good life and have respect for it so that we actually value the protein that goes into our body. Yeah, and, you know, it, it may be the worst day in its life, but you do a quick, clean kill and it won't even know. It doesn't know. That's that's all, that's like, our goal, especially with, like, the quail. They have no clue. We do yeah. quail for meat and they're done, right? And, and I kind of like smaller animals for that reason because it is a little easier to make it quick, you know. Um, you also, you grew up on, on a Kentucky goat farm, right, homestead. Uh, can you talk about how that led you to this like kind of modern homesteading ethos that you live by today? Well, I think growing up that way and then moving away and traveling around and living in cities and that sort of thing, having lived both of those lives and then coming back to the, you know, the town where I live now, we are looking not real heavily, but soon we will be. I mean, we do want some land and to kind of build our own homestead. But, you know, you work with what you have. So we, my wife and I have a house in town. I don't know, maybe around an acre. So um, out of necessity, we, we still want to, you know, produce as much of our own food as possible. We still want our kids to be able to experience farm life and that kind of thing. So, you know, it's, it's, it's like most things that happen in life, at least for me. It's, it's a necessity. I work with what I have. So I... Again, I didn't really have a term for it, but I have started to come across people calling it. I, you know, urban homesteading was it for a while, but I think modern homesteading is a little closer because a lot of people hear the word homestead and they automatically assume you know you have to live way out in the country and have no electricity and or running water and that sort of thing. And you you can live the homesteading lifestyle as a mentality, if nothing else, even in a tiny apartment in the city. As long as you do what you can to produce your own food, to you know try to do it as naturally as possible, and to live authentically, but I, yeah, I guess that's the best I can do to describe it. It's just you work with what you have. No, that makes sense. And in fact, I would say there's probably a lot of people out there that are living very much in the country um, and have big pieces of land because I know they're right down the road from me. Um, that. I would say have nothing to do with homesteading, right? They, they have a, like a fake farm is what I call it because it's basically grass, but they put in a fence that looks like a farm fence, and they have kind of a you know a farm style home and one little pond out in the middle of a field and maybe you know a, a horse running around, and then that's like their their ranch. We, that's loaded up here in Texas. But the, the mindset that you mentioned to me that's more important than the geography or the size because it is all about the mindset. Yeah, well, I mean, that 
where I grew up was really considered more northern Kentucky. We're not too far from Cincinnati. Gotcha. So while we're out in the country, like you said, I mean, we've got neighbors on either side of us who have big patches of land, lots of space they could garden and farm on if they want it. But they've got you know nice clean fence rows because they, you know, not there because they're out there weeding them. They're probably spraying them with Roundup and that sort of thing and doing everything they can to make it all look pretty. But you know have then they go back into their house and you know pull some TV dinners out of the freezer and <laughs> have their dinner when they could easily be producing their own food. So yeah, it's doesn't matter where you live. It's 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 a mentality more than anything. What we've talked about and called it here is like the concept of from home to homestead. Like a home in modern America is a consumer, right? It consumes the majority of a person's income, uh, and they spend the majority of their time away from it, right? So if you flip into a homestead, then the home goes from being a consumer to a producer, and then you find yourself spending a lot more time there. Because right now we have Americans that are spending the majority of their life either trying to give themselves satisfaction through buying plastic shiny stuff, going out to eat and spending lots of money, or working so that they can do that and spend two, three, four hours a day in what I call a mobile metal coffin. People call them cars. And, and it's all to support that giant house that produces nothing, right? And, and if you flip that over to the homestead concept, then the house becomes actually, you know, it becomes what they call it, an asset. Where if you actually put most people's house on a balance sheet with logic today, the house is a liability. Lose your job for a month and you're, you're in the hole. Where if you can actually flip that over to where that thing's actually giving something back to you, it becomes a true asset in your life and for your family. Yeah, and it's not about just producing stuff so you can sell it and make money. Um, you know, like a lot of people ask me if I'm gonna, if I sell my meat, maybe someday I will, but my goal in brewing and with anything else is not, you know, the final outcome is not how can I make money off this. Yes, I need to make money to get by, but you know, I, I I write, and that's kind of how I get my money, among other things. But I guess my point is, you know, if you if you're raising chickens and selling eggs, and you look at how much money goes into feed and everything else, and you really do the you know the financials on that, you're not making anything from doing that money wise. But you're providing for yourself. You have excess that you can provide to other people, and then that money goes back into you know helping buy feed for the chickens and that sort of thing. So it's it's I, I'd really like people to start going away from looking at things as you know the money based economy is only going to work for so much longer I guess is no the I point. agree with that yeah I think we're reaching an end game I don't know that we'll see it the next ten years but I think we're we're reaching an end game with the current economic paradigm like it just has kind of played itself out since it's all based on debt there has to be a point where it doesn't work anymore. And it's just a matter of how long we can milk the thing along. And I'm not going to give away all my money. Don't get me wrong. Uh, I don't mean that in a greedy way. I just mean that like there's value to money today because everybody agrees that there's value to money today. But I don't know that that will always be the case in its current form. And like you're talking about, like you know, sell your mead. Well, I'd rather find the guy that knows where like the ram's head mushrooms are. And like I don't have time to go get them. And you give me you know three or four, which is like thirty pounds. And then I give you a case of meat. That, that that economy will always work. It always has worked. It, it just always will work because it's a it's a true value for value exchange. It it takes the third party and goes, you know what? We don't really need you. And it actually uncaps for people the fact that that's really always been the case. We don't need 
uh, a state to, to stand in between you and I if we want to do business together. Yeah, and I, I think the, the the trading and bartering, bar, I'm sorry, the trading and bartering economy is slowly starting to come back. A lot of us have been doing it for a while. Um, I, I mentioned I I write quite a bit for uh, Earthineer.com, and what, one of the main things that that was started for my friend Dan Adams um, took him a while to actually get the functionality because it took a lot of programming work, but they, they have a marketplace where people can put up. You know, seeds, eggs, whatever, and you can find people locally. And, and the goal was to try to connect people locally online. So, yeah, you can trade with somebody from Texas if you're in Kentucky if you want to do the mail thing. But it, kind of the goal with that is to connect people. And it, I, I think you know, there's still a lot of people that where that kind of trading bartering thing doesn't quite work for them and they'd rather they'd still rather spend money. They feel more comfortable doing that. But I, I have a feeling that within the next, I don't know, 10, 15 years maybe, that, that that's going to become a much bigger thing and become more mainstream. I would hope so at least. But you know, No, I, I think it will, and I think there's like a genuineness when it's, when it's actually local and between people that know each other. And like one way I can explain this, I don't even remember what it was that somebody wanted the last time I ran an event here at my farm. But he's like, well, would you, you know, would you sell that or something like that? And I'm like, oh, you can have that. I, I don't really need it. Just take it. And he had brought, he works at a goat farm, and he had brought like some half gallon jars of goat's milk. And he said, well, can I give you a half gallon of fresh goat milk for it? And I was like, well, hell yeah, you can, right? And so that was the thing where he would have probably gave me that jar of goat's milk anyway, just because he was at one of my events. And I, whatever it was that he wanted, I was gonna, I would have given that to him anyway because I didn't need it. But yet there was still a barter transaction there because, okay, it was more like a gift economy. Like, well, you're giving me this, then I then I feel an obligation to return something to you, and that's that's like a genuine economy. And I think that's how if you take away all the crap that clouds people's vision, and I know we're supposed to be talking about mead, but you know, but I mean really, like, because this is where stuff like mead making leads. That's why I teach it. If you take away all that crap and people actually have what they need, then they become generous, but they also become very reciprocal. Yeah, and, and a lot of times it, it doesn't even have to happen right then. It can come back to you later. I don't. I, I have a number of friends where you know, we do that kind of thing all the time. Here, I'm, I don't need this anymore. I'm tired of seeing it around. Mm-hmm. Take it. You know, it, It's probably worth some money, but you know, it's, it's yours. I, you know, I, I know you're good for it or whatever. And then a couple months later, they, they have something, and just because we've developed this relationship over time, yeah, it, it's not even a, oh, because you gave me that, I'm giving you this. It's more of, oh, okay, well, I have this. Do you want it? And so, and so if, you, if you develop local relationships with, with people, and over time that just becomes a natural thing. And you don't have to sit there and think, okay, well, how much money is this worth? Yeah, yeah. Well, actually, I don't know if you've read, because you mentioned permaculture a couple times, but Toby, Toby Hemingway's latest book, uh, Permaculture City, he talks about the foundational economy of humanity wasn't really a barter economy. It was what you just described. That if we were in a village together and I made knives and your son needed a knife, well, then I just, well, I'm the guy that makes knives. Here's a knife. But whatever I needed, because I was the guy that did that, then it was there was always somebody there willing to support what I was doing. And that was before the, you know, the dawning of the age of currency. And I, I, it might be a little fanciful to think we could go all the way back to that, but I think we can get a lot closer to that than we are today. Yeah, and it all starts with just developing relationships locally. I mean, not just 
friends you get together with and drink beer once in a while, but it, it's a certain kind of relationship where you get to know other people who are doing the same kind of things as you, who are trying to be self-sufficient. And it, it really, um, I almost don't like using the word self-sufficiency sometimes because in the end, you can only be so self-sufficient. It's, it really involves a community. And if you get enough people together, even if you're not living, you know, not like, you know, on a commune or something like that, but yeah. just in general, just like a community of people in your general area. Mm-hmm. And you can only do as much as you can to produce and then, but then you develop relationships with other people and, you know, it, it becomes a community sort of self-sufficiency, I guess. Well, yeah, I think you might like this. Like, so very early on, I did a show about the difference between self-reliance and self-sufficiency. And what I said is self-sufficiency is measured in percentages. So if I can produce 20% of my energy through solar, wind, whatever, then I am, I'm 20% self-sufficient for my energy needs, right? But I'm not 100%. Self-reliance is measured in time. So if I have a generator and fuel and plus my self-sufficiency quotient and I can live for a month without the grid, then I have one month self-reliance. But, but the concept of being infinitely self-reliant or 100% self-sufficient is generally out of the reach of all but the you know, uber-wealthy who could you know, hire somebody to build them a, a place that did it or something like that. And even they would run out. So we're all interdependent. But the goals of increasing those percentages in time durations not only benefit you, but if you actually are supporting the people around you, it benefits your community and it extends the overall quotients of the whole community. Yeah. All I can say there is I agree with you completely. <laughs> cool, man. Anyway, you write, you you wrote your book, but you also write. You mentioned, you know, for websites and some other magazines. What other stuff do you write about other than fermentation? And kind of what's your overreaching goal in writing? You know, all these projects you take on as far as writing. Um, I'd, I'd say the vast majority of what I write, and I'll differentiate between what I actually want to write and the writing I do you know just to make money to pay the bills so i <laughs> that stuff is basically the only goal is to pay the bills i really don't like most of it the the stuff that i write about that i enjoy that i want to write about is primarily you know again all all the kind of general terms homesteading websites and magazines self sufficiency green living whatever you want to call it so you know the, the main ones uh, new pioneer and american frontiersman are ones i've done a couple for They've unfortunately both folded. Their publishing company did. Um, but I've, I've been doing a lot with uh, Backwoods Home lately. And they have a, what used to be just Kindle, but they're starting to print it now, a magazine called Self-Reliance. So all those sorts of things. I mean, there, there are a few others here and there. But I guess my main goal is pretty much what we've been talking about all along is just to, not only just to teach people, but I'm learning myself in the process you know, a lot of the times it's I, I see something that i want to learn how to do or i may know something about it like i've really been getting into wild foraging and learning more about that and or i grow mushrooms out in my yard on logs and you know five years ago i knew nothing about how to do that so i went and taught myself i got to know local experts and then from there it's like all right well i can turn this into an article i know enough about it now i can you know, talk to my friends who are experts and I can research it. So I, it, it's kind of just become this organic thing where I, I, I started 
writing a few things here and there about you know, a lot of it's fermentation related, but then you know I, I write about things like butchering animals and little bits of gardening stuff here and there. So as far as my motivation, um, it, 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 I, I was it just kind of happened, I guess. <laughs> like I said, I started started out writing just to make a living, and really hated most of the stuff I was writing. <laughs> and then over time, I found out that. Apparently, I know all this stuff, or at least know how to learn about it, and I can write about how to do it and teach other people. And then the writing actually turned into, you know, doing workshops and stuff too. So I think my goal in the end to, to kind of <laughs> tie all that together is to first of all teach myself more about how to do things, you know, self-sufficiently, and then from there teach other people how to do it, and then. Find ways to interact with those people because I, you know, like a workshop stuff. I'm learning from people as much as they're learning from me. Even the mead workshops, you know, I'll, I'll come across people who have been brewing and they mention something. And I'm like, oh, well, I, I never really thought of doing that that way. And you know, eventually that starts to work its way into my workshops. So it, it's it's a lot of give and take. Very cool. What it comes down to. So um, let's talk a little bit about the Viking stuff, right? Because that, that obviously was a big influence on you. If you wrote a book called "Make Me Like a Viking," and I got to tell you, if you ever do like a revised and expanded, expand the Viking stuff, right? Because yeah. I was actually disappointed when I got to the recipe section, not because I don't like recipes. I'm like, because I can turn back there any time and read the recipes, like because I, I ran out of Viking stuff. And I, I I was fascinated like the stories of the you know the, the stealing the mead and 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 the explanations for like what causes the bubbles and all this lore was like I had ne- I had read a lot of books about making mead my my intro to mead was, was like this uh, about 23 years ago I'm guessing now thinking about it, I've been married for 20 years so 23 years ago. Uh, a friend of mine that I worked with had decided I can't drink anymore because of health reasons, and he was a home brewer. So he gave me all his home brewing stuff, and it was a dog-eared copy of The Complete Joy of Home Brewing by Charlie Papazian in it. Yep. And, and all I wanted to do was make beer. And I get toward the end, and there's like three recipes for this mead stuff. And I'm like, oh, i got to try that. So I made mead, and I was hooked. So I've been making mead for 20, 23 years now. And that was what got me into making mead in the first place. And so I have literally, and I'm one of these people that you hand me a book, and I'm the kind of guy that you look, I look at the page, and I'm, I can read a, a book cover to cover in you know 20 minutes and retain it. So I've read everything I can get my hands on about making mead. Your book was the first book I ever read that went into that stuff. So what, what kind of hooked you there? And can maybe you talk about it a little bit and share some of the, the, the lore and the mythology that that is the traditional Viking mead. Uh, yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I, I'm I'm glad to hear that. And a lot of what you've said about the Viking kind of stuff, I've heard positive things about more than I expected. And uh, you know, to be honest, I, I felt the same way. I was much more interested in and enjoyed writing the. The history and mythology, but also not just the Vikings, but of fermentation and brewing. Um, but I, I had a a goal from the beginning, and this is kind of my goal in most everything I do, is to try try to pull together different, I guess, communities and mindsets of people. 
So I, I wanted to do just enough of the history and mythology because I wasn't expecting it to be a huge book, but it very well could have been. And, you know, the, I currently there are no plans for it, but it very well could happen to do an expanded version or something like that. Um, so I, I wanted to keep the history and the mythology just enough to kind of whet people's appetite. But for the people who, just, who wanted to pick up a book on how to make mead, then they have that too. So, kind of lost my train of thought there a little bit, but but yeah, the uh, the Viking thing. I've even read reviews where people have said, you know, don't be turned off by the Viking stuff. Like somebody's like, yeah, I wasn't sure about picking it up, and then I read it and I actually realized I enjoyed the Viking stuff. But there's great stuff about how to how to brew on that kind of thing. So yeah, to go back to my inspiration for the actual kind of Viking aspect of it. The the main thing, other than just being interested in the history and mythology in general, I, I've always been very interested in how people you now I know I use the Viking Age as you know, for the book it made sense, especially because of the title, as just an example, but just lots of people back in that era in general. I, I've always been fascinated with how people live their domestic lives. Like how they produce food and drink, how they farmed, that sort of thing. Yeah, it's great to read stories about, you know, battles and that kind of thing. And, and you know, there's a lot of drama involved in all that. And that I, I've, I enjoy just as much reading about, you know, things like knights and that kind of thing. That's great. But in between battles, they had to, you know, eat. <laughs> they had to get through a winter. So, yeah, my, my goal has always been to kind of research and learn about just how they lived, how they how they got by, how they how they butchered and ate animals, and then over time, you know, learning about how they fermented and how they made not just meat but beer and all that sort of thing. So yeah, it's it's just been an interest of mine in general. And in writing the book, I will say that I spent probably a lot more time researching and writing notes on the the history and I, I came across all kinds of stuff on folklore and mythology as it relates to mead and fermentation in general and a lot of it not necessarily related to the Viking sort of thing a lot of Celtic mythology and that sort of stuff so I've got tons of notes <laughs> and that, that very well may, may make its way into something in the future I'm kind of hoping because I, there were a lot of evenings. I ended up writing a lot of the books in the evening, sitting in what I call my booze room, just you know, burbling carboys all around me. And <laughs> it's it's getting near the end where I really have to like start meeting deadlines. And that's generally when I you know started cracking open a bottle of mead and and writing about the mythology and stuff. And that works for a while, and then the next day you have to go through and edit all that. Oh yeah, definitely but, yeah. <laughs> But it, yeah, having a little bit to drink while I was doing it loosened me up. I, I type eighty words a minute, and when I'm drinking, I type a hundred, and uh, I have a net result of sixty. <laughs> I mean, that's like that's like the way that it works, you know. Uh, but maybe could you tell just like one small Viking story uh, that relates to me for the audience to kind of get a feel for what we're talking about? Yeah, um, I actually, depending on whether I'm doing a hands-on workshop or a reading. Um, sometimes I'll go into the Viking story. Sometimes I don't have a lot of time, and I go straight into, you want to know how to make mead, so that's what we're going to do. But there's 
you know, the, the best story to uh, to use for that sort of thing. And I'll, I, I could read the, reading the entire thing takes 15, 20 minutes, and I may lose my voice by the end. So I will uh, do my best to summarize it. There's just so many fun stories involved in this sort of thing. But it, it's 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 called the uh, the meat of poetry, or there are different titles for it. But the section of my book is starts with how meat came to be, and it tells the story of the meat of poetry. And I had to read. Believe me, there are all kinds of different translations, and you know these stories were passed down orally originally. So it, it, it took me some time to go through all these different versions and to develop something that tied them all together and made a cohesive story. And you know, I, I tweaked it a bit here and there to kind of you know fit my own storytelling style, since pretty much everybody who told it orally tweaked it each time. But yeah, the uh, the story is called "How Meat Came to Be," and in the book, I I start before talking about that. I go into a little bit about the symbolic structure of the the symbolic structure of the Norse mythological worldview. It's kind of a mouthful, but uh, the section I start with that is just to try to sum all that up. It's it's a fascinating story, just how they feel the world came to be. But essentially, there are two. Two groups of gods um, called the Esir and the Vanir, and the the Esir are kind of a brash, reactionary, law-abiding, patriarchal set of gods and goddesses, and the Vanir are kind of peace-loving, slow-moving, matriarchal, fertility-loving gods. So <laughs> I like to refer to it as kind of a battle between hippies and rednecks. Okay, it pretty much <laughs> describes it there, and. I kind of wish I'd actually – I had that in the original draft and left it out, and now I kind of I like that, the way that works, because it, it, eventually the two groups come together and realize they actually have more in common than they realize, and they don't even really know why they're fighting. So what they do is they, they get together and they, they reconcile. And there's an ancient tradition of when you reconcile with somebody you've been battling – you actually exchange saliva and not in you know, I'm sure it sounds gross to modern people and um, but basically what they did is um, some stories said they just spat into a cauldron the one I like they chewed up some sp- some berries and spat that into a cauldron and you know basically stirred it all together and in the story of uh, the meat of poetry those uh, the berries and the saliva fermented and what it actually produced instead of an alcoholic, you know, beverage was a a being called Gavasir, K-V-A-S-I-R. And it's unclear from the stories whether he's a god or a man. It doesn't really specify, but he is supposed to be, you know, one of the wisest beings ever in existence and, you know, could could pretty much answer any question put to him and often answers a question with a question to get people thinking and he didn't stick around for too long because the uh, the dwarfs in Norse mythology are really kind of ugly, mean little creatures. And when the dwarfs found out about Kvasir, they they coveted him as a treasure. And they do share that with a lot of our modern you know understanding of dwarves. They really like you know, 
treasures, not just shiny things, but anything that belongs to someone else. They see it and go, I want that for myself. So, yeah, they basically they kidnap him and take him down into their – they live in kind of caverns in the mountains. And, you know, they kill him. And what they actually tell people, tell the, the gods later on was, you know, actually, we, we didn't kill him. He just suffocated from an excess of wisdom. I mean, they're, they're nasty little creatures. But yeah, essentially, once they do that, his his blood, they actually take and put into three different cauldrons. And they mix it with honey. And that is actually how the first mead came to be. Huh. And you know, according to you know, Norse mythology. And so basically, it produces just really awesome mead that, you know, could turn people into poets and great singers and that sort of thing and from what I understand of reading the story they never actually drank any of it themselves they just wanted to keep it so they could say they had it nobody else can have it and they actually went around to the the land of the gods I'm sorry the land of the giants Jotunheim and taunted the giants and were like "Look look at what we have and just kind of picking on them and they went through Midgard which is where we live it's actually what where the term for Middle Earth comes from and we're just just traveling around kind of being you know nasty little things and um, picking on giants they actually tricked a giant into uh, drowning they they rode him out into in a boat in the sea and basically let him drown and they went back and found his wife Gilling and kind of called her out and said, oh, your husband died. And then when she came out, they drop a millstone on her head. They're just you know, going around doing a bunch of nasty stuff. And eventually, you know, one of the giants, Gilling's brother, uh, Sutung, comes out and grabs them, pulls, takes them out to a, a rock on the sea as tide's coming in and tells them that they better give him the magic mead or he's going to let the tide come up and drown him. And they, they try to offer him gold and all kinds of stuff and he's like no I want the meat and long story short or the best I can <laughs> do to make a long story short uh, eventually Odin finds out about this meat and he wants it for the gods so what what Suttung has done is he once he's gotten the meat he's taken it and in deep into his mountain home and he has his um, his daughter guard it for him and turns her into, makes her look like kind of an ugly witch sort of a creature, even though she's actually a beautiful uh, giantess. And Odin finds a way to get into the mountain home of the giant, gets into uh, Gunlug, hope I'm saying her name right, at Gunlad, gets into her uh, cavern, her little home where she's guarding the meat and the, the way the wording goes is he, he you know presents his full godly form and then pleasures her on a couch for three days and <laughs> she's she's so overwhelmed by his godly powers in the sack that she gives him lets him have a drink of the mead and what he ends up doing is drinking all of it hmm. and I, I kind of skipped the part where to get into that cavern he actually um, he He's Odin is kind of a shaman. Basically, he can change shapes. So he 
changed into a snake and managed to get his way into the cavern. And then once he got the mead and drank it all, he changed into an eagle and flew out. And the gods were waiting with three cauldrons for the mead. And as he's flying back to Asgard, um, the giant Sutong also changes into an eagle and chases him. And as Odin passes into Asgard, the giants start a big fire. So Sutong's wings get singed. And he kind of, you know, crashes to the ground, and and then Odin dumps all the mead. Uh, basically, the way I understand it, he drank it all, and then he regurgitated it. But he actually managed to let a few drops land on the ground in Midgard, Earth, and that's how humans got mead. And they they kind of got the excess, but the uh, the the uh, gods do occasionally allow man to have the, the special mead, hmm. which they called the uh, the rhymester share, and the recipients were called poet tasters. And these people went on to become renowned skalds, S K A L D, which is basically a, a storyteller. They, they were the ones who passed along the stories. Um, like the story we're telling. So, telling so right basically now. we get really good at bullshitting when we drink. Exactly. That's awesome. And <laughs> so it's, it, it's again, there, there's so much more to the story, and I could, you know, I could go on telling it all forever until my voice ran out, but it's it's a lot of fun. There are lots of different translations, and I encourage people to look up as many as they can. I can't really recommend one over the other. They're just, it's worthwhile reading the different ones to kind of learn different aspects of the story. But yeah, that's kind of the you know the short and long of it is that the uh, the dwarfs kind of accidentally made meat, or at least they stole it. The gods took it. The gods let us have a little bit of it once in a while. And supposedly these scouts were that they were actually a, a group of people in the Viking Age, and they told their stories. That they basically drank meat to inspire themselves. And from what I understand, a lot of the mead they made was – they weren't just getting high on alcohol. They were actually using psychotropic herbs and plants and probably mushrooms. And, you know, it's a whole whole other type of mead than what we're used to having. So that I remember – now you yeah. just say that. I remember reading that in your book, and I remember your book is where I came up with what I call three flowers blend. So okay. maybe we'll do a little bit of a recipe exchange here at the end. I was going to talk about my coffee meat, but that's pretty boring. Um, so I came up with this stuff called, I call Three Flowers Blend, just kind of by accident. And I was working on um, different teas, actually. And I made a tea that was made out of elderflower, chamomile, and heather. All the blossoms. Yeah. And uh, it was a bit too cloy-like as a tea. It, like, it, it needed to be balanced. It was too much of just flowers. But I thought... As making a five-gallon batch of mead, I'll throw a, a quarter cup of each into it and s- see what happens. And it made this amazing methylogen. It, it's just... But the first time I drank a glass of it, and I drink a little bit, right? So, I mean, a glass, a single glass of mead, and I'm not talking about like a juice glass. I'm talking about, you know, a, a six, eight-ounce glass of, of, of mead. Um, my head was swimming. And then I remembered reading your book about Heather and Heather performing entirely different on the human body when it goes through a fermentation than if it's just, you know, uses a tea or something like that. And I got to tell you, I think there's something to it that some of the um, the, the mind-altering characteristics of herbs 
an herb that doesn't go through a fermentation process, and I have no idea if it matters if it's with honey or I've never made a heather beer, so I don't know. But I can tell you there's there's something to that theory that some herbs have a different effect on us if they go through a fermentation. Yeah, I mean, it does. I think what it does is it almost intensifies their qualities. Mm. Uh, like you, that is why actually a lot of the, uh, I think I actually say in the book, a lot of the more interesting parts of the book were inspired by some of my flower meats. Yeah. And it, every one of those I make, I mean, I often just pick wild violets and throw in some dandelions and heather, outdoor flower, all kinds of stuff. But there, there's something about those meads. I mean, they almost always taste amazing, but I don't need much. And it, it's 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 almost it, it's a lot different than you know saying having a couple glasses of bourbon. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I get a little high, but it's it's a very different sort of a high. It, and it, you can't explain it. You have to have somebody here drink some of it, and you'll see what I'm talking about. Um, and then the three flowers blend. You might like this as well. So I started using like a couple teaspoons of that to the gallon. Uh, when I was making my small batches, and my meads finish fast and they clear fast, and yeah. like when I take it out, they don't. And it's a it's a weird thing. I actually put that out on the show, and then I get all, I get those three herbs from uh, Mountain Rose Herbs, and so I go on Mountain Rose Herbs like a week later to to get some more. I think it was uh, elderflower, and they were out. <laughs> I was like, okay, I got to remember to order stuff before I put it out on the air, yeah. but. Um, it, it's a clarifying agent, and it doesn't seem to do that in that small quantity. It has to be kind of bulked up to, to do that. But that, that three-flower blend, it does. It makes an amazing – it's floral, but I, I don't know about you. I hate sweet meats. I don't like meats that are overly sweet. Almost all commercial meats I've tried, I'm like, it tastes like sugar. I, yeah, I that's one reason I make meat. Yeah, <laughs> like you can't – commercial meats I can drink. I found very few commercial meats that are actually – like even the, even the meaderies that say we make all dry meats, I'm like, no, you don't. No, no, you don't. I'm sorry. Um, semi-sweet at best, you know. Um, but it has a bittering to go along with, like, when you make a tea out of it, it's so so much bouquet up front. And so, like, it's not sweet, but it makes you think it's sweet. But when you ferment it, it actually comes to, like, like, like hops does in beer. And it balances that so you can go higher gravity and drag it down. You know, to where it actually is balanced. It's it's a, it's a cool thing. And flowers, if you make you know teas out of them, they don't do that. They have that that real sweet like nectar like thing going on. But when you ferment them, they they, they become more like a hops. Yeah, you know, I, I, that, that kind of gets me thinking about trying some new things because I have <laughs> I have noticed my flower meats do tend to ferment and clarify a lot quicker. Yeah. So it might it might not be a bad idea to use that as kind of a yeah, not use enough of it to really affect the flavor necessarily, but to throw into some other meats. Yeah, I have a ton of elder out here, by the way, and I'm like, but if I take the blossoms, I don't get the berries. <laughs> so yeah. that's why I've been buying them, and it, you know, it's it, it seems like a good ROI. But hey, do you have maybe just a just assume everybody that's listening knows how to make mead? Um, I have videos on on it; they can get your book on it. But maybe just a quick, simple like uh, a recipe that you would give out. You know, let me give my uh, my coffee one first. So my okay. coffee, so you know, kind of the format I'm saying, like simple and quick. My my coffee meat is made with three pounds of uh, of wildflower honey, which is what I would call my honey because it's whatever the bees can get. Uh, it's made with one cup of coarse cracked uh, coffee beans, and I use a coffee called Mai Tai that's a supporter of the show uh, that's grown in Thailand. And um, 
you know, basic meat recipe there. That's that's pretty much it. Water and yeast. And I've been using uh, a blend of cuvee and pasteur blanc, the two together, which everybody says not to do, but that's another part of my really fast, quick fermentation. And um, two teaspoons of that three flowers blend. And then I ferment that out until it kind of stops and it starts to flocculate. Put it into a secondary. And then the secondary is when I add three, or no, I'm sorry, two um, vanilla beans, split lengthwise, just go in there. And then I do the secondary for about two and a half weeks and then bottle. That's that's the whole thing. So maybe something like that, like just a mead that maybe you've made recently that you've really liked or something like that or something you always go back to or, or what have you. Um, yeah, I mean, your, your way of describing it is pretty much how I would, you know, I, I try to teach people even as beginners is you can learn all the terms and details and stuff later, but it, it's pretty simple. Just mix honey and water. And so, yeah, the, the, there are so many I could, uh, I mean, I'm trying to think of a couple here because, and like what I try to do in the book too is I'm much more about technique than I am necessarily straightforward recipes. Yep. But, um, Mainly what, what I like to do, especially like early in the spring, is I'll do kind of a standard. For one gallon, I usually do about a quart jar of, of honey, which is between two and two and a half pounds. And I, I feel like that makes somewhere between a dry and a semi-sweet. It's, it's about what I like as far as you know sweetness level. And I'll, so I'll take about a quart jar of honey and take a, a gallon of good spring water. And mix those two together, and I I wild ferment this one because it's what I'm doing is I'm picking as many wild violets and mm. you know dandelions as I can. Now, again, for people who haven't made flower meats, don't use the green part. Maybe a tiny bit of it can make it in, but it'll get really bitter if you do. It is possible to make a mead with like a dandelion mead with some of the green. But you have to kind of learn how to balance that. So flower petals. And it's kind of my – I go out in the spring and I pick booze flowers is what I like to say. So just <laughs> as many as you can get. And I you can freeze them, but what I like to do is take all the petals and over a couple of weeks I just put them in a brown paper bag. And, you know, they stay dry enough that way they don't you know, start molding or anything. And so I take that the honey water mix and I'll put all that in and I do it in an open vessel. And cover it with a, uh, a cloth when I'm not doing anything with it to keep flies and stuff from getting in. Stir it several times a day and all the, all the, uh, qualities of that, of the flowers you put in there will, you know, the wild yeast, whatnot, you will have a natural wild fermentation from doing sure. it. And, and I, I do also almost always add in a few organic raisins. They, they, they kind of help with a bit of wild yeast of their own, but uh, they have kind of a, certain level of nutrients and tannins and maybe just five or six for a one gallon batch but that's really it. i mean every spring i make that and it's almost always amazing a lot of the times i'll drink it over the summer without even bottling it because it's so good but it is well worth bottling i almost always bottle it a bit early so it is fizzy you know i, I yeah. happen to like don't like all of my meats fizzy but i do like some of them that way I like I like a a, a, a carbonated mead. Um, yeah. I, I built. I, I'll tell you the truth. Since I really got back into the mead and cider thing, I haven't made a batch of beer in a year. And I built this huge keezer out of like this giant uh, deep freezer, and it'll hold like uh, twelve corny kegs. I've never actually had twelve corny kegs in it, but it, it would hold up to twelve. 
and uh, four uh, taps. And uh, so I do a lot of ciders for that because they're quick, they're easy, they're simple. You can always find, you know, uh, pressed apple juice to, to make ciders with. And I'll do things like a five-gallon batch of cider, five gallons of apple juice, four pounds of frozen organic strawberries and pitch yeast, and that's that's the whole thing. And those are great to just pop in there. People come over. There's a bunch of stuff on tap. So I'll do meads, like really simple meads, stuff like like in your book you call a small mead, and then I'll, I'll put them in the keezer in a five-gallon batch and carbonate them. And a lot of people that say that they don't like carbonated meads, I think it's because, well, everything that the commercial industry makes is what? It's like sugar. Right, it's like it's like uh, Osti Spumante with four tablespoons of sugar added to it. It's it's yeah. just, ugh. but if you do like a a dry to medium dry mead and you carbonate it, you do something like a floured mead or something like that. Um, or I do I've been doing a lot of meads now with Meyer lemon, like one Meyer lemon to a gallon, so five to um, a five gallon batch, and then I rack early because the I don't want to spend time. Peel in the lemon or whatever, so I just throw the whole, you know, like quartered lemons in there, so that white pith can make it bitter. So you rack probably like in half the time you should to get it off of that, and uh, throw that in there and carbonate that. People dig that stuff because it's not what you expect. Like, who who really likes Aussie Spumante other than like eighteen year olds sneaking a drink? Yeah, <laughs> I mean, you know, so yeah, like the carbonated meads are cool. And I got another one for you. Now we've started on this. God knows how long this will go now. Um, this recipe exchange thing. So I've always heard everybody go on and on and blathering on about the uh, orange orange blossom honey meads and the citrusy yes. notes and all. So I'm sitting there one day and I'm going, I don't have orange trees. I have four, but they're very little and I don't get much off them yet. So I'm like, can you buy orange blossoms? So I go on Amazon and find out, yeah, you can buy orange blossoms. So I've done just basically an orange blossom honey mead, you know, between two and three pounds to the gallon. And then using about five tablespoons of orange blossoms, and and then it actually does taste like orange blossom, right? And it's it, it's a real it, it's very simple. That's that's all there is to it. And sometimes with those, I'll do some orange zest and maybe the meat of the orange, leaving that pith out, so you don't have to do the early rack thing. There's just like I think what. What I got out between you and then Michael Jordan, who we call the Bee Whisperer, who's part of our expert council and his small batch stuff, is totally fearless with, like, will this work? Don't know. Going to try it. Throw it in there. It's it's a gallon. If it sucks, don't do that again. Or figure out what you did wrong. Where when I was doing all five-gallon batches, it was like, you got a lot of money tied up in that, and I don't want to make a mistake, if that makes sense. Well, yeah, and and I'll go ahead and throw this out to add on to that. I I have noticed, you know, that I think we're we're both kind of pretty far away from the east or the west coast. Yeah, and I, I've come across. I really want to head up to like say Vermont um, because I've heard a lot of their meters producing what they 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 do what they call honey wines because they differentiate it. That's the standard sweeter wine like mead. But they also produce something that's more like a beer. They call it craft mead. Mm. And I recently did a mini tour of the West Coast where I went back out to Seattle. And there are a ton of great places producing mead there. And there are a lot of uh, – I tried a couple session meads, which is – Yeah, I was just going to say that word. <laughs> yeah. And I looked up some recipes. I, I haven't – I guess I've kind of made these myself without realizing that's what I was doing. But basically you can do a five-gallon batch. 
and not usually for a five gallon batch of meat i'll use 12 to 15 um, pounds of honey and so sure. that can be a lot of money tied up into it but you can make it more like a beer and do maybe four to five pounds of honey so a bit of money tied up into it still but it's kind of one of those it's hard to screw up yeah so and basically it'll it'll ferment quicker it'll be it'll be ready to bottle and you know you prime it like if you're bottling beer and put a little some would say sugar i always try to put a little bit of honey and so yeah basically what and you can flavor it with all kinds of crazy stuff you can go a little wild with that and so it's a way of making a larger amount of mead without having to make it use up a ton of honey. Yeah. And you're producing something with lower alcohol, so you can yeah, drink a few more of them without getting spaced out. Or it's a good way to introduce people who are into beer into mead. Yeah, a lot definitely. of people try that and they're like, "Oh, this isn't what I was expecting. I kind of like this." So here's here's a recipe from like 20 years ago. So I made this stuff. I ended up calling it pollinator conversion triple. Right. Yeah. The, the reason I called it conversion is because it played off the whole monk thing, right? And it also was, like, if you gave somebody a bottle of this, like, they came back to you a week later, like, so how do I make that? Well, it's going to take you two years, so let's show you how to make a brown ale first, right? But it basically was, like, you make a typical Trappist triple using the, the, the smack pack, you know, uh, Chimay-style yeast. Yeah. Uh, you you figure out your hops. From, I, I can't go into that. I can't, out, of, out of my head, I can't even tell you. There was Saz and Tetanang in it. But, um... So you make that with about 10 pounds of malt extract to the uh, to a five-gallon batch. And there's no candy sugar or anything because of what comes next. And this is where it sounds nuts. So you let that primary fermentation go for about two weeks. You know, and it just goes nuts, and then it, it kind of settles down. And you do that in a six-and-a-half-gallon carboy so you have the headspace. Because once it's done with that and it kind of slowing down, you just take a five-pound thing of honey and you just dump it in. You don't... You don't boil it. You don't do anything. You just dump it into the fermenter. And because there's a yeast cake of about an inch and a half thick sitting on the bottom, it just it just goes. <laughs> and it goes nuts. And it ferments that honey out in like a week because there's so much yeast in there. And it finally reaches its tolerance level and says, okay, I'm done. And there's a little bit of residual sweetness, but there's a lot of hops to balance it. And then you need to leave in the bottle for like six months before you open a bottle. But it is – and then – from six months to a year, it's different. And then from a year to a year and a half, it's different. And I would usually give it away at about 18 months in the bottle. And I, I swear to God, almost every single person, uh, or maybe I should say I swear to Odin, every single person <laughs> that tried this came back and said, so how do I make that? And that's actually a very inexpensive um, beer. Is I guess it could be called, what do you, what do you call the mostly beer, somewhat meat? Um, yeah, there's a beer meat hybrid called I can't think what it's called now. What, oh, was that Braggot? Braggot. Yeah, yeah, that's it. So I guess technically it might be a Braggot, but to me it was just a beer. And yeah, again, you can do you know, stuff like that. Call it what you want. <laughs> yeah, whatever. Yeah, right. Yeah. And Michael Jordan says it's all mead. Right? Yeah. If it's mostly honey, this one isn't. But if it's mostly honey, it's mead. It's like, okay, the big debate down here with purism is chili, Texas, right? But if it has beans, it's not chili. No, I think that would be chili with beans. <laughs> Let's not get all worried and bend our shorts about it. But, hey, like we've kind of run this out now, uh, Jeremy. Can you tell people how they can learn more about you, where they can find your writing, stuff like that? Um, yeah, yeah. Easiest way is really good old-fashioned, not good old-fashioned, but anyway, Facebook. I, and I I do have my personal page. I may or may not respond if, if somebody tries to find me on that. But I, I do have one that's for my kind of – my writings so just look up jeremy zimmerman 
which, if you're not seeing this written somewhere, is J-E-R-E-M-E, because I think my dad was drinking some bourbon when he signed the uh, birth certificate. <laughs> but, so, just Jeremy Zimmerman, writer, on Facebook. Okay. But I'm, I'm also on Twitter, um, and because I started out blogging on Earth and Ear, so it's Earth and Ear Yeti. But, yeah, or, or just, just Google me. Uh, you'll... You'll find all kinds of stuff. Cool. Including my own website, which is, again, my name, jeremy-zimmerman.com. And I'll have uh, your Facebook, your Twitter, uh, your jeremy-zimmerman.com site, and your Earth and Ear uh, profile all on the uh, show notes for today. So if you're in a car or something driving down the road and you're, how am I going to remember this? Just like always, go to the show notes for episode 1813 and you can get in touch with Jeremy. And I'll also have links to where people can get your book, Make Me Like a Viking, as well, uh, in the show notes as well. And thank you for being with us today, man. This was a great interview. Yeah, I, I, I enjoyed it. And, I, and I, sometimes I just say that, but this time I really <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I think we've got similar mindsets for sure. Uh, definitely. Uh, some of the stuff you were saying, the people that have listened to this show for eight years, we just said, by the way, two year, two days ago we had our eight-year anniversary of our podcast, uh, are probably going, man, this is this is like Jack's lost brother from the Appalachians <laughs> or something. Yeah. So anyway, man, I really appreciate you. And uh, folks, get out to uh, Jeremy's site, read some of his articles, definitely get his book. Um, I'm telling you guys, the Viking lore in the book is is awesome. Uh, some of the ballads and stuff that's actually included in there are really cool and great uh, recipes. Oh, I, I kind of blathered off. Uh, maybe real quick, you can just give the short explanation of what it is. I mentioned Tedge is an example of something that would be available, you know, something that was made as a mead in different parts of the world. I think it's actually Ethiopian. But could you talk about what what Tedge is just real quick as we as we finish up? Yeah, and if, if we've got a second, um, you I got as much time had... as you want, bro. Well, I realized I hadn't quite gotten into one of my awesome recipes, which is a version of Tej, which it's, it's T hyphen EJ. I'm sure there's a pronunciation that's, that we're, we're both probably butchering it. But sure. I, when I speak I, with you, you know, I'll worry about it, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, but it's actually, you know, again, you know, meat is made all over the place and it's, it's Ethiopia's tradition. It's their, uh, like national beverage, basically. And all it really is, is a meat, but they, they use a, uh, there's a, I guess it's a, maybe a tree or a bush or something called Gesho, G-E-S-H-O. You don't have to use this, but if you want to make it an actual Tej, try to get some. I actually had to get somebody to go to Ethiopia to get it, but um, I live in a college town, so I know some students. But you can get it at an Ethiopian, uh, you know, just try to find an Ethiopian market or go online or something. But what, what they do is they just, you know, I... I the, the student who I talked to who brought some over for me said her her mom has it going all the time. It's just basically a small mead. They just mix honey and water, drop in some of that tej, and and the, as a substitute for tej, you can actually use oak leaves or oak sticks, and basically that kind of provides a kind of bittery tannin to it. So really, all tej is is a wild fermented mead. They just they put it in an open crock, they stir it several times a day. Eventually, the uh, the, the wild yeast that's on the gesho or oak leaves, sticks, whatever you want to use, ferments it naturally. So that all it really is is a wild fermented mead. But and it, there, I can't. I'm not. Maybe you can throw the link out if you want later. There, there is a website that goes into ex, insane detail on Tej with all kinds of different recipes. Um, 
but I, I can't think of the URL right now. It's kind of a long one. But to kind of close out, one of my favorite recipes, which I keep meaning to repeat again, I've already finished off the bottles. In the book, uh, I call it Dr. Yeti's Ethiopian Fire Mead. And a friend of mine, Stephen Cole, drew up a nice little label for the bottle that kind of has what's supposed to be me with a monocle smoking a pipe. And, um, <laughs> basically what I did is I, I – and I'd read that traditionally Tej was actually made in smoked gourds. They would take gourds and smoke, smoke them over a fire. So what I did was I took a big five-gallon ceramic um, – and you can do this as a one-gallon too, but just a big ceramic crock I had, built up a nice fire with some – I don't know what all I used, some hickory or you know, some – Something I would smoke meat with. Got some good smoke on. I smoked the vessel. I was hanging out by my garden. I went and picked. I, I grow a lot of peppers. So I picked some uh, some poblanos. You know, it's different every time I make it, but the, the recipe I, ha- I have is poblano and some cayenne. And I kind of set them on a grill on the fire, smoked those as well. And put them all in there. I, I did a five-gallon batch, so I did 12 pounds of honey. You can do this doing the... Uh, the session meat type thing if you want and use five pounds of honey um, mixed in the appropriate amount of water to kind of bring it to five gallons and again I, I went through the wild fermentation method but you can you can add a yeast I would add you know there's Lavalin D47 is a good common semi-sweet meat uh, yeast so kind of the main thing though you want smoke you want peppers and it's up to you as to how crazy you want to go with the peppers sure I found a couple pepper, I'm sorry, a couple poblanos, and just, you know, maybe two or three to a five-gallon batch of cayenne, and I just kind of break them up and drop them in whole, or the poblanos actually slice to uh, smoke them. And, you know, just a few poblanos, a couple cayennes, well, when you drink it, it's got this, you get the initial, it's one instance in which I actually like it to be a little sweeter. Because the sweet is almost immediately overtaken by the smoke, and then you get that kind of bite from the pepper at the end. So, yeah, Dr. Getty's Ethiopian Fire Mead. And I did decide once to see just how much spice I could handle, and um, I'm I'm using that mead to cook with. (laughs) I I put a whole bunch of hot peppers in there once, and, yeah, I'm not doing that one again. But it does – it is great for basting meat in. So, (laughs) So, yeah, that's – that's uh, that's kind of my, I guess, final recipe to, to share. Cool, man. Well, hey, I appreciate you being with us today. Again, folks, uh, Jeremy's main website is uh, jeremy-zimmerman.com, and Jeremy is J-E-R-E-M-E. And I'll tell you, like you said, your dad must have been drinking meat when he did your birth certificate. My father's name is the same as mine. My actual given name is John Samuel Spierko. My father misspelled Samuel, his own name, on my birth certificate. <laughs> it took a while to clear that up when I joined the Army because it was backwards. Uh, the, okay. U, the U at UEL was backwards. So it happens, I, I guess, because dads fill out birth certificates while they're uh, confused. Celebrating <laughs> with some bourbon. Or yeah, or, yeah, whatever, mead, maybe. Uh, but uh, in my dad's case, from Central PA, probably Yingling. Um, but uh, it does happen. So, man, I had a great time with you today, Jeremy. And I'll have all your links where people can connect with you, including your articles on Earth and Ear, your Twitter, your Facebook, your main website, uh, on the show notes today, along with where they can get your book. And thanks for being with us today. Awesome. Thanks for having me.
All right, and with that wrapped up, let me remind you guys that you can help support this show and the work that we do here by becoming a member of the Support Brigade. If you do that, you uh, get uh, a bunch of great content available nowhere else. You get a bunch of great ebooks, over $200 worth on day one, you can download and keep forever. And you get discounts to over 60 vendors on stuff you're probably buying anyway. They'll put money back in your pocket and make your membership profitable. And it's even better right now because this week, in celebration of eight years of the Survival Podcast, for our eighth year anniversary, we are running a 50% off sale. Uh, I think it's the only time I've ever done a 50% off sale that ran like a week. I think I've done like 10 or 20 and then close it or something like that. I've never done this before. This is for new members or members that are expired only uh, because you can't renew early due to the way the system works. But everybody else, you can just use the discount code HEAT, H-E-A-T. As far as the, the, the program for law enforcement, military, and everything, guys, this, this, this sale blows that one away, that discount I give out every day to the military. So um, if you uh, are thinking about joining, if you've been sitting on the fence, get off the fence and join. 25 bucks for your first year. And if you do want to renew early, you can do that if you do it by U.S. mail. Make sure on the form you indicate you're an existing member. That would be the only way to uh, renew early. And if you renew, use, or, or renew or uh, set up a new account using the form, Right now, due to the price of silver, we're taking two ounces of silver, which is already a great discount. Uh, but we'll take one ounce of silver during this sale as well for renewals. So you can uh, get, get the form to, uh, to join on the uh, members page. If you just scroll to the bottom, you'll see pay by PayPal, credit card, uh, check, money, order, silver. Click on silver and check, and you'll get that form really easy there. And, of course, you can also support our show completely painlessly. Just whenever you're going to shop on Amazon, go to tspaz.com. That's T-S-P-A-Z.com. When you do, uh, you'll see the item of the day. Today's, today's item of the day is kind of a cool one, really, and it's probably something you wouldn't expect. It's pepper, like black pepper. It's a one-pound bag of uh, black peppercorns from Spicy World, and these are Tila Cherry peppercorns. And Tila Cherry peppercorns are really unique. They are very tightly controlled to be able to use that name. Very specific region. It is near where Malabar, which is what most people are familiar with, pepper is grown. But it's different. It's, it's fruitier. It's more intense. It's spicier. It's amazing. And uh, they have them on Amazon for a whopping $13.49 for a one-pound bag. And it's on Prime with free shipping. And kind of the reason that I love this stuff is because it is that more intense flavor. It's better quality. But if you compare it to going out and buying like a you know a two to four ounce bottle of peppercorns in the store, which is what most people do, that'll be four bucks, six bucks. And, and so you're looking at twenty to forty dollars a pound. People pay for pepper to get like middle of the road, low grade, you know whatever they sweep up off the floor peppercorns, where you can get like a premium gourmet product for thirteen bucks a pound. Fit it into four jelly jars and rock on with life. Remember, tspaz.com will redirect you there today. It'll always redirect to Amazon's product of the day from TSP, and I am posting them now on the blog. So you can just, no matter when it is, you can go to tspaz.com. If you want to find old stuff from uh, the Amazon item of the day, all you got to do is go to the survivalpodcast.com, look for an item of the day, and at the bottom you'll see a, a tag for Amazon item of the day. Click that. It'll pull up everything I've done. As of today, that's two. But down the road, that might be interesting for your Christmas shopping and all kinds of stuff like that. Anyway, tspaz.com, even if you don't have any interest in the item of the day, what a great way to support the show and cost you nothing. Tspaz is one letter less than Amazon, so you are go, you're, you're typing one less letter and you help support the show and spend the same amount of money you would anyway. With that, I uh, also want to remind you about the... Um, 
business directory. Of course, we have a business directory on the site for those of you that are entrepreneurs that have your own business. Our supporter of the day today is instantpublisher.com. They specialize in custom printed books, calendars, advertising, and print design. You can contact them through the TSP business directory to self-publish your book. With that, let's talk about our ending song today. Um, I was trying to think, you know, what, what can I do today? And I, I was like looking for some kind of Viking song or something like that. I'm sure it's out there, but I didn't have anything in my collection. And I thought, well, let me just let go of that and, and, and just think about what's going on in my life. So I just found out today that my granddaughter, Tegan, unless nature decides to do it first, is going to be born Thursday next week, June 30th, which is also my son and daughter-in-law's marriage anniversary. So it'll be their second year anniversary and the birth of their first child together. I have a grandson, but he's a step-grandson and stepson to my, my son. So my son's first child is being born to him. Um, will be on the same day he was married. I think that's kind of cool. Um, but that means that that little girl will come into this world next Thursday. I'm going to be a pretty proud papa, man. I'm a you know, really, really proud grandfather to have a new baby girl. And, you know, I was thinking about how how my son, like, seemed to grow when I was gone for a week, when I traveled back when he was little. Like, I would leave and come back, and I swear to God the kid was taller. Like, he was growing faster in the garden sometimes. And how all that time slips away. And, um, you know, I played you guys for Father's Day, Little Miss Magic, and this is another one for really kind of angling toward little girls, but it's really for kids, right? It, it really is, and, and dads being dads, and, and grandfathers being grandfathers. This is by Trace Atkins, and it's called Just Fishing. I think it's a great song. Listen to it, and you can hear, you know, he's stuck there with a pink rod and reel. That's not exactly what a big cowboy like Trace wants to be hanging around with a pink rod. Well, for your kids, you do whatever it is they want to do, and you're building those memories. Think about that today and make sure you're taking time to build memories with your kids. And remember, there's nothing wrong with teaching those kids to make meat. Maybe they're not ready to drink it yet, but they can learn to make it. I remember one of Matthew's teachers asking me when he was in like second grade about the fact that he took part in making beer with me. And I said, well, he can do algebra to, comp, you know, to, to figure out alpha acid ratios um, uh, in wort. Have you taught him algebra yet? And that pretty much ended the conversation. So you can have fun with your kids a bunch of ways. Make sure you do it in Take them fishing. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get too tough, or even if they don't. I'm lost in her there, holding that pink rod and reel. Doing almost everything but sitting still Talking about her ballet shoes and training wheels And her kittens And she thinks we're just fishing I say daddy loves you baby one more time She says I know I think I've got a bite And all this laughing, crying, smiling, dying here inside's what I call living and She thinks we're just fishing on the riverside Throwing back what we could fry Drowning worms and killing time Nothing too ambitious She ain't even thinking about what's really cool Thanks, we're just fishing. 
already pretty like her mama is Gonna drive the boys all crazy, give her daddy fits And I better do this every chance I get Cause time is ticking it is. And she thinks we're just fishing on the riverside Throwing back what we could fry Drowning worms and killing time Nothing too ambitious She ain't even thinking about What's really going on right now But I guarantee this memory's a big one And she thinks we're just fishing She ain't even thinking about What's really going on right now But I guarantee this memory's a big one And she thinks we're just fishing